Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I lived through the AIDS crisis and watched countless friends and lovers die. I mean, the last time I counted, and that was several years ago, it uh, shaded 40 people in London and Dublin. And while that was happening, I always thought I was going to be next. Welcome to Grief Encounters with me, Sasha Hamrog. And I'm Venetia Quick. We're a weekly podcast that looks at an issue that affects us all and yet remains so difficult to talk about. We'll be chatting to guests from all walks of life on the subject of death and all that comes with it. Our main aim is to motivate, comfort and create a modern space for people to share their own experiences. Could you think of someone that could benefit in listening? Tell them about Grief Encounters out every single Tuesday. This week is Pride Week and here in Ireland we have a very rich LGBTQ history. There's a very, very dark and incredibly sad period of Irish history from the early 80s, which I think, to be honest, gets forgotten about. It isn't really talked about. It's almost like it's swept under the carpet. But with weeks like this week, such as uh, Pride Week, it's important that we remember the people who've passed away in this country and other countries from HIV AIDS. In this episode, I talk to Tony Walsh, who is an activist, the founder of the Irish Queer Archive and Gay Community News. And it's really important what he has to say for all of us moving forward, but also to remember that this week is also a week about remembering those who passed away in the 80s when it wasn't socially acceptable to be gay. There was a lot of scaremongering about HIV and AIDS. So it's important to celebrate their life and also remember them during Pride Week. celebrate Pride Week and Ireland's rich LGBTQ history, we wanted to take today's episode of the podcast to look at a particular moment in time uh, that sadly took the lives of so many of the country's citizens. Now, Ireland's first AIDS case was diagnosed in 1982 and the mass hysteria and misinformation that was spread during this period caused damage, I think, that's still prevalent 
within the community to this day to speak about living through the AIDS crisis and his own experiences with loss. We are delighted to be joined in studio with activist, founder of the Irish Queer Archive and Gay Community News, Tony Walsh. Tony, thank you very much um, oh, great to be for here, coming Felicia. in. And obviously, this is this is a really big week for you. Yes, it is. I think I've I've um, only missed one Pride Week since my very first one as a chubby-faced 19-year-old in 1980 when 16 of us wandered around the city centre palming bewildered shoppers with uh, leaflets explaining the history of the Stonewall riots and giving them... We had a balloon drop. There weren't enough people to sustain a parade and, and it's been wonderful watching both uh, Pride Week and the parade itself actually grow exponentially and yeah. be embraced by the city as, uh, I suppose, a, a midsummer Mardi Gras party with a big queer heart. You know, yeah, it's but it's, it's sort of. We, I was discussing it actually with um, somebody this morning because we always go towards Marion Square and like my kids love it. They dress up. They've got all their like their their bits and bobs that they wear, and like it's it's a huge uh, Dublin day out now. It is, and that's the way it should be. And I think every everyone, gay and hetero people, young and old, can buy into it without ever forgetting at its heart um, what its remit is. I mean, there's still a political, it's still part political protest as much as a family day out, as mm-hmm. much as a street, uh, as a street carnival. And I think it's always good to sort of uh, use the parade as a pivot for reflection. Uh, reflection on the distance we've travelled, um, uh, an opportunity to wave goodbye to everyone who never made it this far. I think mm. that's very important. Is that very prevalent on a day like the day of the this week, and also on a day like the day yeah, of? I think it's possible. I think it's possible. I'm, we. I think it's possible to dress our, our. Uh, we can memorialize our our, our history. Um, and use something that's aspirational and positive um, mm. to frame it. Uh, and I actually think, as you know, that Mardi Gras in Australia proves this: that that political pro- political protests uh, on their own um, don't have as much traction as something like a big party. I mean, it's, it's possible mm. to actually protest. I, I I think we protest our pride. Uh, it's possible it's to like go a, out there. But is it sort of like a silent protest in one way? Because it seems often when you when you hear the word protest, you think of, you know, people on the streets in France. And, you know, it, it, whereas when you hear of pride, maybe because the colours, it always feels much more happy and uplifting. I think we need that. I mean, there are many men and women in my generation and not just uh, gay men and women who lost people who lost family members who lost friends during the AIDS crisis I mean a shocking number of people died Mm. all over the world and in Ireland and we've never been allowed grieve up Mm. until recently we've never been allowed grieve I mean I find myself actually remembering the period what I call the war the AIDS crisis from um, 80 say 84 when people began dying in increasing numbers up to 96 when antiretroviral therapies became available and the debt started to diminish. But um, that period was so couched in criminality and transgressiveness and taboo that, uh, and people were just simply floored by the experience mm. that we, we, 
we had to develop a coping mechanism and then move on. And, and it seems to me now that when I look back and try and make sense of the period that, that um, we just simply weren't allowed grieve. We just we had to pick ourselves yeah. up and find some way to move on to make sense of it. And it's only now with a distance of 30 years and there's been a slew of new uh, documentaries, film documentaries and um, um, academic uh, responses to it. Uh, there's some really been mean some really good journalism. I think it's just people are opening themselves mm. up to uh, to that period um, and trying to acknowledge how they got through it mm. and to be able to talk about it. I think it's just really important. Yeah, well, I think we live in a totally different society now than obviously we did back then anyway. So I think it's sort of the conversation is more open. Oh, sure. It's a little um, bit like depression. I mean, yeah. it's only in the last 20 years that we've actually fessed up to acknowledging depression and, and finding a mechanism for talking about it and articulating our responses to it in the same way. I think it's mm. the same way with grief. And it's OK not to feel OK. Um, bring us back to the early 80s. And I mean, because this whole the whole idea of uh, grief and the stigma around grief and not talking about it, sweeping it under the carpet, getting on with it. Um, bring us back to that time and maybe when the first person you knew passed away from AIDS and how that felt for you. My first friend. So here's the thing, just to frame the period. Um, I was 23 when, 22 when the first AIDS cases were notified. Mm. And we'd been, because I was um, politically active at the time, we in the National Gay Federation um, we were aware from the early 80s uh, of this condition that was coming down the line. Uh, we were getting lots of responses from the United States, which, of course, was the epicenter mm. of, of AIDS in those days, New York, San Francisco. Uh, so we were well aware of it even before it had a proper name. And then, of course, the virus itself was identified in, um, I think it's 83, 84. Uh, and I, for momentarily, I was involved with the first um, support group, Gay Health Action, and then I, I had to step aside because I just didn't have enough time for it. But a group of men came together, um, later aided by, by some lesbians, and they developed the first uh, information leaflets, not just for the gay community, but mm. actually for all of worried heterosexuals, because the government simply abrogated its responsibility. I mean, it's quite extraordinary that from the the time the first AIDS cases were notified in Ireland, it took the Oireachtas five years to have a conversation in Leinster House about the unfolding crisis. Not unlike what Ronald Reagan did. I, I mean, it took him five years as well to mm. actually mention the word AIDS. Uh, why, why do you think that was? Do you think they didn't have enough information? Do you no, think? No, the information was out there. I just think they ho imagined it would go away and was only affecting, at the, in the initial stage, it was affecting Oh, it was affecting all marginalised communities and I just think they just simply didn't care. It was affecting Haitians, it was affecting black people, it was affecting gay people. Uh, and they just didn't care. Here, our, our biggest cohort of infections here in the early days were IV drug users living marginalised lives in, uh, nor in um, very socially and economically deprived uh, urban centres. Mm. Um, and... Uh, and they were struggling and they were in, in to all intents and purposes, they were invisible, not unlike the gay community. I mean, we, it's 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 very difficult in a post decriminalization environment. It's very difficult to try and imagine, imagine. what it was like to be a gay man or woman. Mm. And even though women weren't specifically penalized by by uh, the law, they were they suffered the 
they suffered under the aura of criminality that existed to the extent that, for example, in custody uh, cases, uh, judges invariably gave custody and access to women unless the sexuality of the mother was known. And if she was gay, uh, custody almost invariably went to uh, the father. And he could have been a wife beater, a child abuser, Mm. whatever. Uh, There was extraordinary antipathy uh, and repression towards gay people. People were denied access to um, promotion. People were actually often fired from their jobs for being openly gay. People refused service in hotels. People refused in bars. I was asked to leave a bar on Dame Street with my boyfriend just for holding hands. I wasn't even kissing him at the time. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is in the early 80s. It's very strange. And then, of course, people were being beaten up as well. And two, uh, and just again to frame that period, we have a, a situation where there's four what was known as special clinics, VD, venereal disease, we call it STIs now. There were four special clinics that were just simply an afterthought to um, uh, an outpatient's clinic. There's no comprehensive sex, uh, sexual health education and of course condoms were illegal. Mm. So you've got all of that to contend with and then you've got this shocking disease that people for in the early stages don't know how they got it. But it also must have been incredibly scary. Uh, incredibly well. scary but and then like I, I read a statistic last year that 14% of the population in 2018 imagine you can get HIV from a toilet seat. So you can imagine <laughs> what it was yeah, like yeah. <laughs> so back then before we had the internet. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And I think so all of that came to bear on how people framed a response to the horror. Lots of us just stopped having sex for a while. Mm. Um, we certainly stopped having intercourse for a while unless we could access um, condoms. And here's the thing, too. I find myself in my mid 20s. Uh, my friends are going to get my friends of my own age are becoming ill in in a shocking way. Awful cancers and and virulent uh, pneumonias. Um, and then there's um, the illness that Vincent Hanley died from cytomegalovirus, which just it eats up your brain, mm. you go by, blind, you get dementia, and you're gone very quickly. Um, and, you know, you're surrounded by friends, and you imagine, you're in your mid-twenties, you have to imagine you have it all ahead of you. Yeah, and you're so young. And though. there's the conceit that you're going to live forever and everything else as well at that mm. age. And you're going to go out there and have a fabulous life and dance happily into the future with your best mates only to find them being struck down by this awful illness that people are telling you is the wrath of God and whatever else and that you deserve it. Uh, and who are showing a distinct lack of, of empathy uh, towards the illness. And people were shunned. People mm. were asked to put on... When you went to visit um, uh, patients in um, Hospital 5 in St. James's, you were asked to wear gowns and rubber gloves and masks and everything. It was dreadful. There was a, there was a, a whole plague a- aesthetic um, uh, informed people's, people's hysterical responses to, uh, to disease. And... It's funny because I blocked out a lot of that period yeah. and it's only when I, I began co-writing my my show with this is Pop Baby last year, which which takes up uh, a huge chunk of that period um, and tries to make sense of it that I began to, you know, drill down and just uncover some of my feelings to the period. And I, I found it very difficult to go back there because mm. I would just invariably get very weepy um, it's incredibly isolating as well. And, like you're, and also just people, people don't talk about it. You know, it's. I mean, if you start talking about the manner in which you lost friends and and your response to it, a lot of people will just tell you to cheer up and can we talk about something brighter or whatever. And it's, um, 
so so it's that's difficult as well but but I do find myself uh, I, I do find it find myself thinking it's necessary to to go back there and make some sense of it um, for all of us and also just to remember these people because so many of our friends that experience the war as I call it the AIDS crisis it's just been airbrushed out of our history would you like to see I mean obviously for the families of the people that passed away from AIDS, how was it for them? Because if there's all this stigma or was all this stigma around it and, you know, they must have had extended family who might have felt uncomfortable. Well, here's you know. the thing. Mary Shannon in 1991, a wonderful woman, set up the Irish Names Project, which was a, a an Irish iteration of the AIDS quilt. Mm. In the United States, it's 85 kilometers long. They're digitizing it at the moment. And there's there's quite a few panels here. It went on the road in 1991, then was never seen again. Went into storage. Now, for anyone who doesn't know what these panels are, they're about like um, a meter 50 wide, about 70 centimeters long. Uh, they're different sizes, but that's the main size. And they're, imagine them as quilt panels and people have embroidered and appliqued and glued on a memorabilia that represents the deceased brother or son or uncle or aunt or whatever. Um, and there is really poignant testimony to the loss that people experienced. And it's, it's one of the few um, glorious reminders that people have, a physical totem that people have of of their loss. Um, some of the panels were went on display again during the 30th anniversary of HIV Ireland um, last year. But um, a gang of us have been talking, people who are um, frontline sexual health educators, activists, and other people who've got skin in the game, uh, and historians have been talking about building an Irish AIDS memorial and we've actually got the support of the government. Uh, we're tentatively exploring a number of sites in Dublin. We've also opened up the conversation to involve people in Belfast and Cork. And the idea is that at, at some point uh, within the next couple of years, we will build a physical memorial. And it will be somewhere, some, a place where people can go and grieve, where people can go and uh, have poetry readings, where people can have presentations. And uh, I think more importantly, uh, something that becomes a transmitter of of people's histories, their stories, their stories. Somewhere, a, 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 I see it as a transmitter of of people's of lived experience, and I think that's very important because people need to tell their stories, not unlike the legacy of uh, the, the Northern Ireland and the troubles. A lot of time people just want to feel free to move on and they want yeah. some mechanism to go, this was my experience and I was hurt and I lost people through the war or whatever else. And they haven't been offered that. Um, uh, hence, we're still living with people still living in a dysfunctional society in the north. Mm. And I feel people need to need a mechanism for their grief, need to say this was me and this is what we went through. And also too, on a more positive note, um, use that experience, use the coping mechanisms and survival strategies of a previous generation and apply them to the problems we find ourselves in today. Mm. You know, we've got rising levels of HIV infection. We've got people who um, <clears throat> simply don't have access to 
holistic sexual health education or whatever, and in many cases know nothing about that period, know nothing about uh, the sheer horror and the brutal loss. So, so I do think we, we need, not only do we need a memorial, but we also need to stitch it back into our educational system yeah. and our histories. And yeah. that's, that hasn't happened. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for a safe haven to express how you feel, share articles, photos, and memories of your loved ones, join the Grief Encounters Facebook group, a place for support, compassion, and empathy for those grieving. Um, We've talked a lot on this podcast about um, the words people use and how people talk about you know, somebody that's passed away, like the sort of, uh, well, at least, you know, you're young, you might meet someone else, at least he went quickly, at least he wasn't in hospital. And I'm just thinking about this time in Ireland and the stories you're telling me now. Was there a lot of sort of people, as you lost friends, who turned around and said, ah, well, you know, he did have a certain lifestyle or whatever did you did you encounter that did you find that even more difficult to deal with than well here's the thing you're always going to find somebody some people who are going to be judgmental and who simply can't find the required the necessary social empathy to deal with this this horror in their midst I'll give you an example of how that played out I had a friend who was only in his early 30s. His boyfriend looked after him and you'd often see him pushing him up the, uh, the street. Um, and he was had chaos lesions, uh, uh, just a nasty cancer that was mm. one of the most superficial um, in, indications of uh, full-blown AIDS. And um, I don't want to name the friends, but um, his, his lover, carer, mentioned to me that uh, occasionally he would see somebody walking up Grafton Street and actually studiously avoiding them, not wanting to be seen with them at all, at all. Um, On the other hand, there was extraordinary compassion shown by people, the medical profession, people like um, Dr. Fiona Mulcahy and her colleagues set up uh, Ireland's first dedicated STI clinic, which is still going, the Guy Clinic in James Street, and then they had an AIDS ward over it. And 
at a time when they were fighting for resources, even very simple things, practical stuff, um, they showed extraordinary compassion to, to people who were suffering, in some cases just dying really horrible, shabby deaths. And also at the time when the government just wasn't pumping money in. I mean, my friend John Nolan, the Kerry man who set up Sides Dance Club, for any of the club kids out there, Ireland's uh, first commercial dance club, and he um, was, uh, um, became HIV positive and began a slow decline in the early 90s. And um, um, angered by the lack of facilities that people, some of them his friends, uh, had access to in, in hospital in the AIDS ward, set up a group called Comfort Aid. Now, this is the community itself resourcing its survival, mm. the LGBT community itself resourcing its survival in the face of extraordinary dereliction of duty by government and government agencies. And Comfort Aid went out there to fundraise to buy things like blankets for the hospital extra facilities to make people feel comfortable, extra facilities to make the extended family and friends and lovers of their um, uh, their dying ones that little bit more comfort comfortable. Um, so it's do you and, and so again, do you feel and angry about that. Does that like yes, when you look back? Yes, do you I feel do. Angry? Do you feel? Yes, I do feel angry. It, and actually, up until I did the show last year, I couldn't talk about it. I just started crying. I just I. Uh, it's but anger is corrosive, you know. It's you can't hang on to it. Mm. You can't hang on to it that long. I have a friend. He's um, a, a reti- he's retired now, late sixties, and he's still angry with the gay community. He's a gay man. He's angry with the gay community because he feels we've forgotten our friends. He's forgotten the, his people who died. Um, and I look at him and go, I don't want to be that person. We have to, we have to resolve this. We have to resolve the lingering hurt and distress and anger that people have and find whatever mechanism is there to make sense of it all. Um, and obviously talking about it more helps. Yeah. Writing about it more helps. What we're doing right and now educating helps. educating people, I yes. think, you know. Yeah. Um, living with HIV. <laughs> oh in. God, you're opening up a can of worms <laughs> here now. Uh, you don't have to answer anything, but you know, a lot of, we're in 2019 now. A lot of people, Panty, a lot of people have been very vocal about um, their journey and their, if you can call it a journey, it's not a word I particularly like because, <laughs> you know, I always think when it was somebody has cancer or something, it's like, it suddenly becomes a journey. A journey is a trip to the south of France. But anyway, um, like this, this, um, I suppose, living with HIV and in 2019, where, what is the difference? What is the? Is it more? Uh, well, before I answer, do you feel more positive now than? Well, before I answer yeah. that, I I I have to just qualify my response to finding out I was HIV positive, and this is what I mean by you opening up a can of worms, because I I lived through the AIDS crisis and watched countless friends and lovers die. I mean, the last time I counted, and that was several years ago, it uh, shaded 40 people. Wow. Uh, that you knew personally? Yes, in London and Dublin. Uh, some of them as young as, the youngest was 27. Um, my friend Barry Warner died, and I would have been his the same age as him. In fact, he was a month younger than me. Uh, but they were all mainly in their late 20s and early 30s. Um, and ju- while that was happening, 
I always thought I was going to be next. I just we there was just this horror that it, it's going to. Am I going to be next? You just watch all of your close friends and even lovers dying and think it's I'm next. No matter how much I'm attempting to use safer sex, uh, it's I'm going to be next on the list. And then you find you survive. You have to make sense of that survival. Is there a bit of survivor's guilt? There's a huge amount of survivor's guilt. But here's the thing. It gets even more complicated then <laughs> because I become positive, what is it, 10 years after the advent of antiretroviral therapies in 2005. I was raped and um, I'd spent a lifetime using condoms. In fact, uh, my mother always insisted she was she was she knew some of my friends who'd they, um, she was close to some of my friends who died of AIDS uh, so she was all going I hope you're protecting yourself I hope you're using condoms and everything and like you're looking after yourself and everything I'm going yes I am yes oh, I am amazing, so I've got through the crisis um, only to find myself then 10 years later becoming uh, HIV positive at a time when it's simply a long-term illness, mm. long-term condition, and I can live a normal life. And that added a whole other layer of guilt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, I can see that, I, mean, yeah. I can see that. Because, it's because I'm going, yeah. and, and I really had to spend, I think I've been, I've spent, I've spent the last 10 years just trying to rationalize that. And again, working it into my show was just a great, it was a great medium for just, Slowing off, slowing off a lot of that destructive, those destructive impulses. Um, but now, yes, of course, I'm in a situation where, luckily enough, in Ireland, it's paid for by the state. I take one little pill with 500 calories, and it stops HIV from. It simply just turns off the switch. HIV lingers in the body, turns it off though, it makes it inactive, and once I. And look after my health and don't smoke and don't drink too much and make sure that my lipids and my cholesterol levels are okay I'd probably die of a heart attack or some mm. bog standard old age illness like dementia or whatever mm. um, but it's uh, and again I just feel every day I just give thanks that I'm alive and I'm also living in a country like Ireland unlike say South Africa where people still dying full blown AIDS because they don't have access to expens expensive antiretroviral therapies. And actually, by the way, I should qualify it. People are still dying of AIDS in Ireland. We just don't hear about it. Why? It's, it's just gone off the radar. Um, but there have been a number of notified full-blown cases of AIDS uh, deaths and do you last think, year. And do you think, well, obviously, we should be highlighting that more? Highlighting that more, it's uh, we have some wonderful people in... Um, ACT UP, uh, Dublin and Gay Health Network, several groups, HIV Ireland, all campaigning for better facilities, all campaigning for better information. Look, we don't have a sex, sex, sexual health or sex education uh, system fit for purpose in this country. We're not teaching kids. We're not teaching kids about body integrity. We're not teaching kids about being responsible, about the things they need to do if they're going to make certain choices, about harm reduction around alcohol abuse and drug abuse and whatnot. Uh, so, and, uh, and these are all part of what I call a sort of holistic sexual health strategy that we need to engage with. And part of that process also requires us to memorialize what has gone before. And without browbeating people and hitting them over the head about, oh, it was so bloody awful back in the 80s and everything, because I don't think that's going to have any effect. 
Um, but there has to be, be a purpose. There, there has to be a absolutely, reason. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, um, and I think once we stitch that back into something a more progressive response to the place we find ourselves in, we might be able to deal with the rising levels of HIV. I mean, they're shocking. We have more um, we have more cases of HIV infection now than we had at any time during the AIDS crisis, which is shocking. It's Because the thing is, notwithstanding what I've just said about the fact that I just take one pill and I can lead a happy life, I wouldn't wish HIV on anyone, you know? It still, it still ha- has a lot of problems. There's issues around HIV and ageing and whatnot, yeah. which I'm not going to go into n- now. But, but, you know, it's still like any long-term condition. It comes with its own set of problems mm-hmm. um, that become more particular as we grow older. Um, so it's, people should be finding a way to avoid it. And that's where we need to be agitating for things like access to PrEP. Uh, our president on World Aid say two years ago, congratulated the government on rolling out PrEP, um, but s- rightly said that it need, needs to be made affordable at points of, of uh, use. It still averages about 80 euro a month compared to the pill I take every day, which costs 40 euro a pill. Wow. So when you try and quantify that, we should be making PrEP available to, which of course for, um, is pre-exposure prophylaxis. You take this pill and, it, and if you take it under the right conditions, it prevents you from getting um, infected. So sex workers and anyone who's potentially at risk should be taking a pill like that. Where are you with your grief? And how often do you let yourself think back to that time? when Ireland seems such a dark well, place. It's, not, it's not a question, Venetia, of letting myself think back to that time because it's just my memory is suffused with it. It's, it's with me all the time. Mm. It's it's impossible. It's impossible to ignore it. I mean, I'm I'm all about the business of living and mm-hmm. looking forward, looking forward and being in the moment, but looking forward. But it's I always feel that I just simply have one foot back in the past and it's and I'm, I, I feel I'd be a fraud if I didn't find a way to remember my beloved mm. ones. I didn't find, find a way to... And I use moments like Pride and other events during the year to sort of locate my grief and my memory of that period and just memorialise it in whatever sort of positive way I can. And here's the thing. One, what also helps me go back to that, make sense of all that period, I just mentioned it to you earlier, it helps me in, in, in my recovery, say, is um, remembering that we, we actually had fun mm. during, during in, in the midst of shocking horror yeah. uh, and bewilderment, we, we just got on with it and made our lives because that's what we had to yeah. do. And know? does not sometimes make you feel so much better, like remembering the good times. Yes. And that must put a smile on your face when you think about the tremendous fun times you did have? Well, all of that actually, not only does it do, do a very efficient job of blocking out the hurt and grief, mm. or certainly modulating it, yeah. it also brings the faces, the actual faces, the voices of uh, my bereaved back into sharp focus again. And that's really a lovely thing. 
that sort of armor. Is that comforting? Yes, it armors yeah. me as I go forward. Uh, you know, I don't want to forget them. They were good people. They mm. helped me make my life and I want to carry them with me. Mm. So um, this is Pride Week and I think certainly after chatting now with you, there'll be, I, I'll sort of feel a lot when I, when I go to the parade on Saturday with my kids, I certainly will be remembering people that I didn't know, but that we should all remember. Uh, and I think everyone should maybe carry a little bit of that with them on Saturday. I hope so. Tony Walsh, thank you very much. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.